Hello and welcome to another episode of Essential Cardano 360, your monthly roundup of just some of the latest news and developments from across the Cardano ecosystem. Now, before we dive in, please remember to like, subscribe and hit that bell icon to get all the latest and greatest news on Cardano. And go on, hit that like right now and let's get as many people as possible watching. Around 30% of you watching today still aren't subscribers, so let's get those numbers up. It's been another busy month and we've got some great updates for you today. We'll have the latest on Voltaire and the continuing progress towards sustainable, decentralised governance on Cardano. We'll hear more on Marlow, now on Mainnet, and the latest from the LACE team. Five binaries will be here to talk about their new NFT initiative, Continuity Token, and Tony from Atala Prism will be here to give us an update on Atala Prism version 2. But first up, World Mobile. Founded with a clear mission to connect the unconnected and drive a sharing economy for the world, the World Mobile team has been as busy as ever. I had the pleasure of talking to World Mobile CEO Mickey Watkins. We had a quick catch up on their progress against that mission, including their latest work in Africa, the US and now Asia. Mickey, great to have you back on 360. It's uh, It's been a little while now. World Mobile is one of the better known projects building on Cardano. Of course, you're one of the more familiar faces as well within the ecosystem. But for anyone who isn't familiar with you, perhaps you want to give us a bit of an introduction to World Mobile and your mission. Sure. I'm Mickey Watkins. I'm the CEO and the founder of World Mobile. World Mobile is driven as a new economic model to incentivize people to put down infrastructure where there isn't none. Half the planet's unconnected. More than half the planet are underserved. And we have a solution via a sharing economy, which we're executing right now. Now, of course, the site of your first commercial deployment was Zanzibar, but that's not all you're doing on the African continent. Perhaps you can tell us more about your plans there. So we started off in Zanzibar a couple of years ago, fine tuning and making the sharing economy work. I'm very proud to say that today the sharing economy is standing up on its own. That sharing economy is now moving to other places such as Kenya, Mozambique, Nigeria, and a few other countries that are on the roadmap too. And you've had some field trials there recently, I understand. Yeah, well, every day we're working on different subjects, testing different infrastructure, fine-tuning the sharing economy to work in those areas and, and beyond, in fact. We've launched in Pakistan as well, and the most impressive part there is a cookie-cutter approach. So we don't actually have any men or, or women on the ground, so no boots, no trucks, and the sharing economy is actually growing very well in Pakistan. So we're very proud of what we've managed to bring and give birth to in East Africa that's now being exported to the rest of the world. So what are some of the challenges faced in Pakistan? What, what are the similarities there with the work you're doing on the African continent? What are the differences? The key thing is, is there's a demand. There's a demand for, for internet. Everybody wants high speeds, low cost, available internet. So the demand is the same everywhere we, we go, whether that's Europe or any of the other continents we're on. Challenges, um, there are very little challenges when you have spent so long learning how to deploy a sharing economy and fine tuning it to the point that it can actually run on its own. So we're super excited and feel that we're over a lot of the struggles and challenges that we've, we've been through. And this next year is a year for, for absolute growth for World Mobile. Yeah, I mean, on the subject of growth, I think last year you also announced some work in the US as well. What's happening there? US is super exciting for both our aerial network and our ground network. We actually have four or five markets that we're entering into right now. And uh, it's happening as well. A slight different model than the model that we're running in East Africa or the model that we're running in Pakistan. But it's still the same, the same subject, still the same, the same thing, just enabling people to be able to jump onto the network in a slightly different way. When you're using licensed spectrum compared to unlicensed spectrum, or using Wi-Fi as an example compared to somewhere that will go 15 kilometers, it's very different. When someone comes to the node with Wi-Fi, they, they arrive and they huddle around there. The other model that we've got in the United States, 
the network will come to you as opposed to you coming to the network itself. Using licensed spectrum, you're able to actually jump a lot further. So with Wi-Fi, the, the range is, is around 150 to 200 meters at best, but you've got huge capacity. You know, you can run massive amounts of, of data through that, but everybody huddles and comes to this. And this is a very appropriate model for, for East Africa where infrastructure, power, uh, light is, isn't there, for example. But in America, you know, everybody doesn't want to come to within range of a Wi-Fi. So fortunately, we've got ourselves in the position where we do have licensed spectrum. We're able to broadcast just like any other mobile network operator, long distances. That's not to say we don't use unlicensed spectrum. We're also using CBRS to, to work as an offload to fill the capacity into the network and using the license spectrum to reach the customer on the far end and then building using Operation Airnode around those areas. Now, of course, your combination of kind of aerostats, I believe, in the New Hampshire and a slightly different technology in, in Africa is, is what powers the network. But of course, so do all the Earth nodes. Can you tell us a little bit more about what Earth nodes are and how the community is involved in those? Sure. Earth nodes are the mobile core. Earth nodes are the machines that run everybody's traffic. So the connectivity layer are called air nodes, whether that's the aerial network or the ground network. Well done for not calling it a balloon. You've got a point there. It's an aerostat. But what we do is we can see huge amounts of distance with an aerostat, um, around 75 kilometer radius. And actually in V2, we're looking at around 120 to 150 kilometer radius, so 400, 300, 400 meters. The ground network is there to fill in the capacity. So when you see that everybody is, is connecting to your aerostat, you don't really want that. You want this ubiquitous coverage coming from the aerostat. And then you want the heavy usage, i.e. university or a conurbation of 500 houses. They shouldn't all connect to the aerostat because they're using resources that that aren't needed. So then we go with Operation Anode and build out around those areas to provide that consistent connectivity using CBRS or, or other license spectrum. And then the Aerostat, when they leave that area, they still have connectivity rather than a private 5G network. I understand you've also got something else coming down the line, the Scan to Earn program and an app. Can you tell us more about that? Very important. How can people help World Mobile? They can help World Mobile by downloading an application on their phone, the World Mobile app, Inside the World Mobile app is an application called scan to earn What they do is they, they install, then they keep it on, they press a button, and they report information back to us of the network around them. So we can see where the holes in the connectivity exists, and then we can apply those holes to Operation Airnode. Typically, what companies would have done is gone to buy huge databases from Okla, as an example, or from the, the carriers, the mobile network operators themselves, providing this information. But there's nothing like having live, real, true information. And we tie that in with our digital identity. So the user actually owns that data, and then we buy that data from them rather than buying that data from, from another party. It's far more accurate, far more efficient, and we're getting real-time statistics daily. It's effectively, I suppose, crowdsourced quality of service data. Yeah, we, we check the speed of the network around, we check the decibels of the coverage around, uh, and then we're able to see, and we're able to see these huge, huge Swiss cheese holes inside the connectivity layer, or if there's none at all. So now we can see where people are unconnected totally, or where people have pain points in, in areas that they live, and then we fill the gap. So Mickey, tell me a little bit more about this app, how it works, what it does, etc. The app is, is a really exciting moment for World Mobile. So the application itself, you download it. Of course, you can manage your network activity. You can order your SIM cards. You can see your data that you've used. You can distribute the data across uh, between your family. But beyond that, every user who downloads the application is granted a digital identity. So a lot of the data that you create is actually your data, not my data as the mobile network operator or the ISP, but your data. And then that data then can be shared, could be rented, could be donated, but it's your choice. So that's a very exciting moment. But inside the application itself, 
Uh, we also have some fantastic functions. We call it a super app, and we think that this could be the application that brings mass adoption. Uh, we have a lot of people waiting in the queue to download it. We have people using it right now in Zanzibar, and we're just about to release the global application, which will make it very easy for you to be able to hold cryptocurrency, uh, use that cryptocurrency, work inside a marketplace, buy vouchers. And also, of course, we discussed scan to earn earlier. That's a big part of the app. But the future iterations over the next couple of months will involve a lot more telecommunications that actually works in conjunction with the earth nodes themselves. So it's all coming together in a place that we're, we're very happy, very excited, and excited to share this with the rest of the world. Mass adoption is around the corner. So Mickey, obviously lots going on at the moment, and I'm sure lots more over the coming months and years. How can people best keep in touch with how World Mobile is rolling out its solutions? We have an amazing community and amazing ambassadors that will answer any questions. Um, I'm available on Twitter, Telegram. Reach out to any one of the co-founders or any one of the team. We're all online, I would say 24-7, and we welcome you, whether that's coming in just to find out about this mission, to see it's not right that half the world is unconnected, or whether you want to contribute to this mission, own an air node, run an earth node, or just support the projects as it is. Mickey, thank you very much for coming on 360. Uh, good luck with the next few months, and we'll see you again soon, I hope. Thank you, Tim. Together we're unstoppable. I appreciate you. So thanks to Mickey for joining us today. And if you want to play your part in World Mobile's mission, be sure to download their new global app on Google Play to join the community beta. You'll find the links you need to get involved in the show notes below. The Age of Voltaire is all about governance, and it's all about you, the Cardano community. Now, the last couple of months have seen a host of workshops take place across the globe. LATAM, the US, Canada, Europe, Africa, and most recently, Asia. Here's an update from Sheldon Addy, joined by Nathaniel from Emergo and Nicola from the Cardano Foundation, to talk about the amazing contributions you're all making to the process. Hi, I'm Addy Gerard with IOG, and I lead communications with Voltaire. Today, I want to talk to you about democratic consent and how SIP1694 is progressing with the community. I'm joined by Sheldon, who's going to give us a little bit of an update about what's going on with that. Ah, just arriving back from Tokyo. So uh, Emergo was hosting their SIP1694 community workshop, and it was an excellent, excellent workshop. And actually, I'll just share with you right now the conversation that I had with Nate. Nate, thank you very much for joining me today. It's wonderful to have your time. Wanted to jump right in and ask you, how did the SIP1694 workshop in Tokyo go? Thanks, Sheldon. It went very well. In order to facilitate the phase of Voltaire, we, we conducted a series of workshops and Tokyo was one of those. The locations were geographically spread. So we had Switzerland, Japan, and later we have Edinburgh for Tokyo specifically. The goal was to gather the input and collaborate towards moving towards the SIP and gain community validation. And actually, yes, we achieved that. I think the turnout was great. The participation was great, largely down to different mix of people that, that joined. So overall, it was a success. And, and I think we had a great input from not just the Japanese community, but the entire APAC community that came and joined on the day. So very happy with that. So besides the, the APAC component of it, what were some other features to this workshop that differentiated it from previous workshops? It wasn't different in terms of content specifically, but it was very different in terms of the way we approached it. So going to some of the workshops myself, I realized that a lot of the content and format that we did may not be enough for the for the Japanese audience in terms of, one, it, we had to change everything from Japanese to English. Uh, two, we actually came across some boundaries in the earlier workshops where we jumped straight into something like DREP incentives and actually asking participants what do you think it should be should there be any incentive at all with the Tokyo workshop we adjusted it a bit because we had a lot of um, difficulties in terms of that 
question being a bit binary and we adjusted it so we kicked off with more definitions on okay what's the day in the life of a dealer what do they actually do and then we moved on to how much should they be paid or should they be paid and, and that really helped a lot because we use the, the learnings from the previous workshop to kind of compound our insights and learnings for tokyo which helped a lot and then so looking back on the the workshop and the, the takeaways there what were some of the big interesting talking points what were some of the more interesting components of the workshop as with a lot of these workshops the more interesting topic was focused around community tooling Community tooling is something that everyone has an opinion on because naturally blockchain is quite difficult to use and fragmented when you want to do different things. And this is one of the things that actually with governance, everyone needs access and everyone needs, well, easy access to a voting mechanism. So a lot of opinions on UI, UX in terms of the voting mechanism, what kind of wallets and applications and integrations would be there. I think that was probably the first thing that people were most vocal about. I would say the second part would be the minimum ADA balance for governance actions. So this is a tricky one because you need it low enough to ensure everyone has access in and not priced out of governance so across the world. But at the same time, you have to balance, I would say, the network usage or network spamming effects. So in terms of having it low enough, could, could there be spamming issues? So these are the things that were really discussed. And I guess and Togo specifically was about, you know, is spamming really an issue? And we kind of deep dive into that and, and what parameters can be put to kind of mitigate that. So th those were more the kind of interesting, but plus kind of deep level discussion points that we experienced in the, in the workshop. Well, yeah, I want to thank you and Emergo for all you've done in, in putting this event together. Very keen to see how things play out from here. Do you have any parting words for the community or anything you'd like to convey on Voltaire and SIP 1694? Although it's been... You know, a lot of collaboration between IO and Cardano Foundation and Amargo to, to pull together a lot of the aspects. I think that community participation and within this and that being the core pillar has really been kind of the most engaging part that's come out. So we've had a lot of interesting input. We've had so many different Cardano ambassadors and different builders come forward and, and contribute, not just from running workshops, but also translating different documents or creating extra kind of YouTube explainers and stuff to really push this through. And, and that's something we've been trying to foster. And it's not something you can do with just any community. They have to be passionate. And it seems like that's come through a lot. And um, although I think generally from what I've seen, not everyone knows exactly what Emergo does as a business. And although we do many things from fintech to education to investment, um, this is something that we've embraced. And, and I think um, we, we've experienced kind of a new new side to the community in terms of like being able to work with them towards something that's tangible. Yeah, it's, it's been an exciting journey and also looking forward to kind of how it evolves, working closer with the community in the future. Thank you so much for taking time to chat. And uh, once again, thank you for hosting the community workshop. It was excellent. Looking forward to working with you again in the near future. Thanks, Sheldon. Wow, Sheldon, thank you so much for sharing. How amazing to see the two languages come together as you guys discuss SIP 1694. Yes, it was an incredible workshop. I have to once again give enormous credit to the Emergo team and our Japanese community for turning out and, and putting together an excellent, excellent workshop. But my understanding is that it wasn't the only workshop that's recently been held. Right, Eddie, you've got some more to share. I certainly do. While I didn't go to the Zug workshop, I was able to catch up with Nicholas from Cardano Foundation, who's going to give us a little bit of insight about what happened at that workshop earlier this month. Hi, everyone. My name is Nicholas Czerny. I'm a community manager working for the Cardano Foundation. Right now, I'm primarily focused on Voltaire and the Voltaire orchestration, as we call it internally. Uh, what does that mean? Basically, I'm trying to you know, keep up to date with the recent updates of the CIP itself 
and basically everything that's going on in the Cardano community regarding governance, the age of Voltaire. And I'm also trying to get that info to the internal stakeholders at the Cardano Foundation. It's so nice to have this time with you, Nicholas. I understand that you guys just put on a SIP 1694 workshop in Zug. Can you tell me a little bit about that structure and how it went? Yeah, absolutely. So the Zug workshop was just amazing. I mean, there were so many different people from the Cardano community there, representatives from different companies that are actually building on Cardano, like NMaker or MuesliSwap. And also we had a lot of SPOs there. And I mean, very importantly, we had representatives from the Cardano Foundation, Emergo and IOG also joining us there. Not to lead the conversation, but to actually join the community in talking about the various governance discussions. And the way it was structured, it was a full day event on June 3rd. And yeah, it, it was it was just an amazing experience to get so many different perspectives about governance. Just join the conversation who, who really made a difference, I believe. That's amazing. It sounds like you had such a great showing of community participants. What were some of the topics you guys talked about? One of the topics was the on-chain deposits for governance actions or the DREPs itself. So when a user needs to, or when a user wants to create a governance action on-chain, when they want to submit the governance action on-chain, they will have to pay a deposit fee. And we discussed, first of all, how high should the deposit fee and then we also discussed that for the DREPs itself, like how high should the deposits be for them to register themselves on chain. And another thing we talked about was, I think one of the most interesting topics are the DREP incentives. So here we had some, I would say heated discussion about if a DREP should have an incentive, if they should be incentivized. And basically the whole group was split into two camps. One group said, Yes, absolutely. We need incentives. Otherwise, why would DREPs do anything? Basically, why would they spend all that time in governance? And then we had this other camp that was more on the side of, no, we should absolutely not do it. Yeah, it, it was a very interesting discussion. And I could spend probably hours just talking about that. <laughs> I'm sure. I mean, it sounds like it was just really amazing to be a part of it and to see the community's passion and listening to so many different diverse opinions and diverse perspectives about what really brings together minimum viable governance that serves the needs of all. No, absolutely. That especially getting people from various backgrounds, different age groups, different professions to join the conversation. That's what what's, what these community workshops are for, right? A group that shares the same backgrounds also have, shares the same biases in a way. So by having a diverse group join a conversation in designing the on-chain governance model and really thinking about how it can be ideally implemented, that is, I think, how we can, that's the only way how we can get real consensus and real understanding of how a good or how a functioning governance system should look like. So what are the next steps? So what the next steps for the CIP are, in my opinion, is to, first of all, continue the conversation. I mean, right now we still have a lot of workshops that are still going on or that are still happening. I think up until July, we'll have quite a lot of in-person and also online workshops. So I would really encourage anyone that has the opportunity or that has the time to join one of those workshops to do so and really engage in the conversations. And then the next step basically is collecting and really gathering all that feedback from the different workshops, understanding, you know, what are the similarities, where do people disagree and try to 
create one final, I don't know, report or an output in whatever way and also show that to the community. So the community can really see how valuable these workshops were and what great findings and discussions the people had because it's going to be an, a massive report probably. It's going to be a lot of work for the people working on that. But the lessons learned from, from all the workshops that will not just influence the minimal viable governance model that we're implementing now, but even I would even say the future of the governance model. So post MVG. Thank you so much for joining me, Nicholas. Really appreciate your work on the workshop. Thank you very much, Eddie. It's a pleasure. And I just want to say it was so great to have everyone there at the workshop. So I really want to thank all of the people that attended. Thank you very much, Eddie. <laughs> wow. It was a, a great conversation. I wish I was there in Zug to have joined that workshop myself. Me too. I think it's just incredible to see both pioneer entities having a SIP 6094 workshop in the same month to talk about what will happen with the future of minimum viable governance. It's been an action-packed couple of weeks, but we're not done yet. So we still have another dozen or so workshops that are to be held around the world in the coming weeks, in addition to one final workshop that's going to be held with some of the community members to really ideally come together and have one final version of the SIP be produced. That sounds like a really exciting time, Sheldon, but I know that's not the only way people can connect with SIP 1694. That is correct, Addy. So we want to encourage everybody involved in the community discussions to continue to be involved in carrying forward these conversations. So please continue to follow the Twitter accounts of IO, Emergo, and the CF, in addition to following along on Discord, if you're not already. And then, of course, there's the GitHub. So you can still go on and read up on the SIP and contribute questions, comments, suggestions to the SIP directly. So please carry forward with these various channels to keep the conversation going. Thanks so much, Sheldon, for coming and talking with me today about the latest on SIP 1694. And a special shout out there to everybody participating in those workshops, working to define the future governance model for Cardano. Project Catalyst Fund 10 launched last week, and we asked Chris Baird, product lead at Project Catalyst, to drop by and give us an update on what the community can expect in this round, including the largest data fund ever for community projects helping build out the Cardano ecosystem. Hi, everybody. I'm Chris Baird, product lead at Project Catalyst. Well, last week on June 21st, Project Catalyst launched Fund 10. And this is the largest ever Catalyst funding round with 50 million ADA available for community funded projects. So before we get into what Fund10 is all about, what is Project Catalyst? Well, Catalyst is a community driven innovation engine for Cardano. It operates like a grants program where the community submit proposals requesting funding to deliver projects for the benefit of the Cardano ecosystem. Community reviewers then review those proposals and give their opinions and feedbacks and scores against criteria that then help to inform voters who ultimately vote on which of the proposals should receive funding. In the past two years, we've received over 1.7 million votes from the Cardano community, voting for and approving over 1,150 projects from over 100 countries represented across the world. And of those more than 1,100 projects, over 600 of them have now completed and delivered what they say they were going to deliver as part of their original funded proposals. And some of these projects are a number of the most well-known teams and projects in the Cardano ecosphere. 
such as the TX Pipe team, who have delivered the Aiken smart contract toolchain, funded by Catalyst. Or you might know M-Labs, who have delivered the Plutarch smart contract tooling. Or DC Spark, with a number of projects, such as the Rustesk DK for Alonzo, its update to Babbage, the Milcomitor project, Carp, and many others. Or who could forget five binaries with their open source Blockfrost project, of which many, many hundreds of community developers and builders in the Cardano ecosystem are making use of all these tools and projects that have been funded through Catalyst. Well, what's new with Fund 10? In Fund 10, there are more opportunities for the community to earn rewards in ADA, such as within the total refresh of the community review stage, that period between once proposals have been submitted and once the vote starts taking place. We're also introducing milestone-based funding, which means that community members will be leading the verification that projects that have been approved and received funding from Project Catalysts are actually delivering the milestones and the deliverables as they said they would. This helps to form consensus in a totally decentralized way, where you guys in the community are responsible for submitting the proposals, voting on proposals, and then ultimately verifying that funded teams have done what they set out to achieve. Also, for the first time in Fund 10, the Catalyst team will be submitting our own proposals requesting funding from the Treasury. These are going to be in two new Catalyst categories, Catalyst Fund Operations and Catalyst Systems Improvements. And this is going to provide you guys in the community uh, an opportunity to make a choice whether to advance the state of the art of the Project Catalyst team's roadmap and realise our vision for a fully co-built and co-operated and co-created Project Catalyst. So, how would you look to get involved? Well, proposal submissions have already opened and you have until the July the 13th to get in your proposal drafts and a further four days until July 17th to finalise those proposals. Voting begins on August the 31st and will run for two weeks. So it's really important that you download the Catalyst voting app from the app stores and register to vote before August the 18th. All of the information on how you can participate, either as a proposer or as a voter, or of any of the community review roles, all of this information will be found on projectcatalyst.io, the Project Catalyst website and home for all things Project Catalyst. Thank you. So thank you to Chris and everybody on the Project Catalyst team. And of course, a shout out to everyone in the Catalyst community driving grassroots innovation on Cardano. Now, speaking of innovation, the Marlowe team announced earlier this month that audit complete, it was going live on mainnet. Marlowe is a growing set of tools that makes it easier than ever before to build a smart contract on Cardano. Marcom's manager, Dominica Kusak, and head of product for smart contracts, Omar Hussain, are here now to share a little bit more and give some further details on Marlowe's official launch celebration taking place in Lisbon in early July. Hi everyone, I'm Dominika and I work at IOG as Marketing and Communications Manager and I'm here with Omer. Hi Omer, how are you? Hi Dominika, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm good. Uh, hi everyone, I am uh, Head of Product for Smart Contracts at IOG and here I think to talk about Marlowe today. Yes, let's talk about Marlowe indeed. So do you want to share with us some exciting news about Marlowe and the recent achievements? Sure. So yes, it's really exciting. We are finally fully audited and live on mainnet. This involves us being ready for all of you experimenters to come and play around with Marlowe. We've just launched a new website as well as a documentation 
cool. So we have a lot of information along with tutorials and videos coming out very soon. Do you want to talk a little bit more about Marlowe's key capabilities, features, and what actually Marlowe is? So I think the first thing that we need to clarify is that Marlowe is much more than just a DSL or just a language. It's a set of tools that allows you to create, integrate, as well as monetize smart contracts. So we can think of Marlowe in many different components. There's the create aspect, which you use the playground for, and you can also use the playground to test your code and visualize what are the possible scenarios that emerge from this. Then we have the option of customizing the smart contracts and creating templates out of them. So you can also create a contract generator, which you can later embed into your applications. To interact with Marlowe and the Cardano blockchain, we've created something called the Marlowe Runtime. Now, to make that a really simple journey for you, we've collaborated with TX Pipes to meet a run, and this is now just a simple turnkey solution to use backend services on Marlowe. Then we also have, of course, the aspect of IOG being security first, priority on that. So we're going through many different audits of the Marlowe language. We're going to be releasing tools that are battle tested quite a bit. So we hope that any sort of bugs and bounties that we put out are going to be managed by the community. And more broadly, what we're seeing in the smart contract space is that we want to position Marlowe as a smart contract primitive. By primitive, we mean just a building block for creating different applications in different industries and different verticals. Now, this is fantastic, Omar. It seems like so much to do and test for the Cardano community. So how the community can contribute to Marlowe's roadmap? So this particular phase is really interesting because it's even though we are live on mainnet, it doesn't mean the Marlowe project is complete. We're mostly following the guide of the community. So you tell us what you're building, you tell us what you need, you tell us where the journey is kind of broken or not as smooth for you. And we'll try to provide the tools as well as the education around how to use them, but also just make that journey simpler. So for instance, we know there's a lot of people who are building on top of Marlowe using Demeter Run, where I think we assessed around 20 projects. Um, we don't know who you are just yet. We know some of you, of course, but we'd love to hear from you and assess whether or not we can help you. You can get in touch with us through Discord. You can join the Discord channels, but you're also most welcome to submit something through Zendesk, as well as reach out to us on Twitter. Perfect. And last but not least, I think you've got some exciting news to share. Yes. So we're having a Marlowe launch party on July 5th in Lisbon. Please join us. There is limited capacity, so we don't know how many registrations will be open till the last minute. But it's basically a moment for us to celebrate just this major milestone, both internally as long, along with the friends and family of IOG and the Smart Contracts tribe. Thanks, Omar. This is great. So much going on. Uh, thanks so much for this update and looking forward for more. Thanks for having me. So congratulations to the entire Marlow team and be sure to join us in Lisbon if you're local or fancy a trip to one of Europe's leading blockchain hubs. You'll find the registration information included in the link below. The capacity is limited, so make sure you check that out soon. Now, many of you will be aware of IOG's identity solution, Atala Prism. We're excited to share that Atala Prism version 2 is now available and the Atala team's continuing to work hard to help more developers and projects building on Cardano get on board. Here's Tony Rose with an update. Good morning. Hi, my name is Tony Rose. I'm the head of product for Atala Prism at Input Output. Today I'm here to share with you some of the exciting things we have going on this summer related to the release of Atala Prism V2. 
This is something the team has been working really hard on over the past 18 months, and we're super excited to share with you our Catalyst Challenge, our Hackathon, the relaunch of our Pioneer Program, and tell you how you can learn about PRISM and how you can work with us to build your decentralized identity applications. Atala PRISM is developer tools for building decentralized identity applications, working with the new World Wide Web Consortium standards of DIDs, decentralized identifiers, verifiable credentials, and DIDCOM. It's a great companion to uh, blockchain applications and lets you own, hold, and control your data, including who you connect to and who you share information with. Let's get started. So one of the things we're super thrilled is that Catalyst Fund 10, our challenge, launch ecosystems, has been funded, and there will be over 3 million ADA available for proposers. We're looking for proposers to create governance framework working groups in their given domain. So for example, supply chain ecosystems or healthcare ecosystems or financial services ecosystems. Those are some of the ideas that we're already seeing being developed within the decentralized ecosystems world. And we're thrilled to have partnered with Catalyst to have our challenge funded for Fund 10. Uh, we are also announcing a hackathon that will be going on this summer between July 14th and the 26th of August. We will be announcing a People's Choice Awards at the Rare Evo conference on August 24th, and we will be running this hackathon in collaboration with the Summon platform. You can also join our Pioneer program just by signing up through our website, and we're thrilled that we're launching the third edition of our Pioneer Program 101 course, and we're launching for the first time our, our 102 course, as well as our 103 course. So Taller Prism 101, we've sent over a thousand people from our community uh, through this program. And over the last 18 months, there have been three different catalyst challenges that have funded many of our pioneers who eventually graduate to Astros, where they're building applications with us. The second course we're launching is Atala Prism 102, Building Applications for Decentralized Identity. And this is being made available for the first time. It is the evolution of our beta program. And so this is where you'll get access to Jupyter Notebooks, office hours of our engineering team and our product management team, and all of the SDKs that we've been developing for Atala Prism. You can get access to those today in our Atala Prism 102 course. And finally, we're thrilled to announce uh, Talaprism 103, which is for UX designers. In the Web3 industry, we have a lot of UX design challenges still ahead of us. And when we start to build wallets and applications that can do both digital identity and crypto assets, the user experience challenges get very interesting. And so we're thrilled to offer the 103 building applications and UX designers as well coming up. You can find out more by going to our website, atalaprism.io, and make sure and register for the Pioneer Program. Thank you very much. I'll see you in the Pioneer Program. Thanks to Tony for that. Earlier this month, IOG made LACE fully open source. Aligning with the principles of Web3, the community can now view the source code and begin contributing to LACE's future development. Hi, I'm Rudy, Community Manager for LACE. I'm here today to talk about all things that happen with LACE, 
in the month of June. And I'm excited to bring you Alex. Alex, would you like to introduce yourself? Thanks for inviting me to the show. Uh, yes, I'm Alex Appeldoorn. I'm the head of product for Lace and Wallet Infrastructure. Perfect. Nice to hear from you, Alex. So what's cooking on Lace? What's happening? In the last update that we've done, we've invited our auditing partners, FIO, to talk a little bit about the auditing process that we've undergone and the security foundings that they've uncovered. So essentially, since the publication of the report, we've essentially fixed all the security advice that, uh, that the FIO team has given us. And as a consequence of that one, we've essentially open sourced LACE to the public. So not only the FIO team, but everybody in the LACE community can check the, the LACE code and see exactly what we've done in the LACE browser. Now, as many, uh, many of you know, the Cardano JS SDK was already open source for quite a while, which is the engine behind LACE. And it's also a, a very popular tool under the Cardano developer community for a lot of applications. So now with the combination of the Cardano JS SDK being open sourced and in its first release version and the latest complete code stack being open source, the community has a wide insight into everything that has been happening with Lace. What else is coming then in the next release of Lace? So in the previous release, we've added the Brave browser as a supported browser for the Glace extension. And over the next months, we'll be adding more and more browsers so that more and more people can have access to the Glace browser extension. So super exciting to hear about 1.1.1 and Brave support. The community welcomed that really well as well. Um, it has been a wait since launch. A lot of users actually have used Lace with Brave, but having a full support means much more for you know bugs and issues that we might have in the future. So really, really nice to hear that. On that, we also can talk about maybe Lace 1.2, which is a very exciting version for all of us. Lace 1.2 is essentially the extension of 1.1. Most notable, there's been a lot of conversation around multi-address wallets. So as most of you know, uh, Lace is a single address wallet. However, with the introduction of certification into the wallet ecosystem, what we're essentially talking about is, is standardized wallets, right? So when we are talking about standardized wallets, there's a number of CIPs that we're, we're essentially following. Single address wallet essentially came after multi-address wallet. So in order to support multi-address wallets, we've essentially added multi-address support to Lace. What this effectively means is that you can see the balances of all the addresses that are associated with your wallet. However, uh, we do believe that the single address wallet has the most benefit. So although you can now see the, the funds that are on other addresses inside of your wallet, uh, we will still be using the single address wallet as operational use. This has many benefits. So for some people that essentially have been using a hardware wallet that they might have had for uh, for years, they can now see their full balance on their hardware wallets. If they're using uh, mnemonics that they've had for, for a number of years, they can see their balance on those addresses as well. On top of that, there's been some questions around the value of some of the native assets that they've had in their wallets. So we've improved the, the price fetching uh, mechanisms, resulting in more accurate representation of the value of their native assets in their wallets. I think those are two noble features that we've, we've essentially added in order to improve the experience of Lace. Now, on top of that, we're also talking about NFT foldering. So NFT foldering is essentially, NFTs are essentially issued by an artist or as a, as, a, as a group. So users can now folder NFTs that have things in common with each other, depending on how the user perceives that. 
So you can either do it by artist or you can do it by theme or you can do it by issuing date or whichever way you want to organize your NFTs. That's, that's up to you. And for those people that have a lot of NFTs, this makes it a lot more easy to navigate through Lace and view their entire NFT collection. I think you touched on very community demanded points there. I think the multi-address one is one of the biggest ones. We have seen that with Brave support from launch. And also, I, I can see the way you explain about the single address. So how we are, we are kind of future-proofing Lace. And this is our way kind of to compromise. We, we kind of fulfilling the needs of the community, but also making sure that Lace has the best standards moving forward. So really, really cool on that one, Alex. Um, the, the NFT folder, I think for me, is like the cherry on the cake. It's just like a, nail, a really nice extra in terms of UX, UI. Um, and I hope that the community really enjoys it. Um, I think it's also important to talk about DAP connectors. I think, you know, we have seen an increased number of DAPs connecting to Lace and integrating Lace, and we have been celebrating that with the community as well. And I think Lace 1.2 helps with that. Lace is essentially following the standards that were set out by the community and with the community. And, the, and this process is, is a tremendous collaboration uh, between various parties. SIP 30 has unfortunately a number of, of drawbacks in the sense that different wallets and different dApps can implement it slightly differently. And that means that for different interpretations, uh, we need to create different types of support. So we've essentially been working with a host of, of dApps in the community in order to support the slight deviations in implementation, resulting in a, a better and, and more robust dApp connector. And that means that more and more dApps will be supporting Lace in the coming days and weeks. Amazing, Alex. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to share with the Lace community? Yeah, I think what we've essentially proven over the last couple of months is our propensity for us to now very quickly start releasing new bits of software and increased features and functionalities. We're actively listening to the community and we're uh, actively taking in feedback uh, in order to pr improve the experience of Lace. So even though Lace might not be the best wallet for you right now with your input and with your support it will grow and it will improve over time so my recommendation right now is to just download lace use it as much as possible give us your feedback and we will definitely listen to you yes i can reiterate that i think like personally 1.2 is one of my favorite releases and it gets me really really excited about, about what's coming next and i i, I second your, your thought i think that the community has to continue getting involved don't forget, register to receive emails and updates. Don't forget, I'm on Discord. My handle hasn't changed. It's Rudy9229. And I'm available via DM if you want to, you know, contribute with any piece of feedback that the team would love to hear. Thanks to Rudy and Alex for that. And be sure to follow Lace on the socials to keep track of all the latest updates over the months ahead. Now, over the last several months, we've been highlighting just some of the projects building out Cardano's infrastructure. And this month, Matthew Capps sat down with Blockfrost creator and Five Binaries CEO, Marek Mahout, to talk about the company's latest project, Continuity Token. Hi, I'm Matthew, Community Manager at IOG, and I'm here with Marek from Five Binaries. So Merrick, could you introduce us to yourself, Five Binaries, and the project that you're bringing us? Yes, thank you. Uh, my name is Marek. I'm from Five Binaries. We are a company building Cardano infrastructure. We are probably best known for our flagship project, which is called Blockfrost. But today I'm here to introduce our new project, the Continuity Token. And why does Continuity Token exist? What problem is it solving? We are trying to solve the problem of backup of Cardano NFTs. 
you may be asking why do i need to backup my nfts when they are stored across thousands of nodes of decentralized networks such as cardano itself but the problem is they are not not many people know this but the actual cardano nft media itself is not stored directly on the blockchain what we are storing on the blockchain is just the location and the hash of the file but we are pointing to a different network most commonly this is ipfs interplanetary file system storage which is a network very similar to BitTorrent. And in this network, at least one person need to hold this Cardon NFT media in order to be accessible on this network. So if no one is holding this, uh, if you open your wallet, you will just have a blank page. This is something that we often see uh, in other blockchains, such as Ethereum, when a lot of NFT store on different blockchains may even point to non-decentralized network. IPFS is a decentralized network, but some NFTs are pointing just to a straight URL, Web2 URL, which is pretty problematic if you think about decentralization itself. And so what is the concept of continuity token? What is the technical background that allows you to solve this issue? The concept is pretty straightforward. Just by holding your continuity token in your wallet, we as a company are going to scrape your wallet for all the Cardano NFTs you are holding. And we are actually going to store those media into our servers, which are distributed across the world. All right. And I know you have a couple of tiers of different solutions that you use, including some really innovative and interesting ideas. So what are those different solutions that people can expect from a continuity token? Yeah. So besides providing this hot backup, hot because it's connected directly to the internet and your file is always accessible to the IPFS network, we are also providing two long-term storage solutions. The first one, which we call the hot plan, is by holding at least five continuity tokens, we are going to fetch your Cardano NFT media and we are going to burn it into a carbon glass disk, really a special one that we are storing in a, in a physical safe. This is not just a deposit box, this is a real underground safe here in Prague Czech Republic, which has the same certification as the safes of centralized banks. The other plan we are providing is called Arctic plan, and by holding at least 50 continuity tokens in your wallet, we are going to transfer your Cardano NFT media into a special film, which we are going to store in an abandoned mine in the Arctic permafrost. We are actually working with the Arctic World Archive, which is trying to safeguard uh, the digital heritage for future generations. That's amazing. As an NFT owner myself, it's really exciting to hear. So are there any final thoughts that you'd like to leave with the audience? Uh, the continuity token has been designed mostly for consumers, so anyone that is holding Cardano NFT. But we are also inviting projects to collaborate with us. As an example, we are preserving all of the space buds in our eternal collections. So if you buy a space buds, you don't need to worry about the backup itself. That's great. So where can people go if they want to talk to you, ask questions, or find out more? Just find us on Twitter at Continuity Token or on our website, continuity.to. All right. Merrick, thank you for joining us and thanks to the audience for watching. Thank you for having me. Now, just a few more things before we close proceedings today. Mithril is the name used for a fictional metal in Middle-earth. Malleable, very light in weight, but strong as triple steel. It's also the name of the protocol, which will enable the fast bootstrapping of a full node securely and in a lightweight way. The Mithril team is in the final stages of testing and gearing up for a mainnet beta launch later this year with the help of a group of volunteer SPOs. And the team would love as much feedback as possible and test more use cases as they continue to iterate and improve Mithril prior to the full mainnet launch. So SPOs and devs, get involved. Links are below. 
And talking of nodes, this month saw the release of the latest 8.1.1 node. If you're interested in learning more about the node and the CLI from a technical perspective, you should check out an excellent course created by Carlos and the IOG education team. With video lessons, practical examples and exercises, you'll get to learn all the key concepts as well as follow practical tutorials and step-by-step -step guides to setting up and running a node. We recently had one chain on the show to talk about their testnet and bounty program and they've let us know that their technical bridge is now nearing readiness and will be launching very soon on mainnet. So keep an eye out for the official announcement from them soon. That's it for this month. If you want to dive deeper, you'll find the links for everything we feature today in the show notes below. Now we'll be back with a full 360 in August with a special bulletin from Addy and Sheldon keeping you up to date on Voltaire in July. So make sure you subscribe and click that bell to get alerted as soon as that lands. See you soon.